Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Good morning. Everybody wait. I had a Red Bull this morning. You can judge me. You can judge me all you want. I don't have a problem with it. In fact, uh, in fact, it was necessary. It was, ab- it was absolutely necessary for me to have that Red Bull. So, how awesome was last night? Yeah. I have. Um, I've never seen Dan yell that loud before, ever. There were veins popping out of his head that I just didn't even know. It's pretty impressive. I mean, Dan keeps a volume. His, his volume tends to be just like at like level nine, just through the entire sermon. But he really, he cranked it up there at the end. Um, and, uh, and I thought he was going to hurt himself. You know, he talked about how old he was so many times last night. I thought maybe he might have a heart attack. Um, but it was really, it was a powerful sermon. And uh, clearly God is at work in our midst. Uh, there were a lot of people making decisions and, and getting prayer. And uh, as we said last night, the, the intent of the retreat is that people get a vision, a collective vision for our ministries about how we're supposed to move forward in pursuit of the Lord and ministering to our community and seeing souls saved, but also get a personal vision. What is it that the Lord is telling you specifically about where you're at in your faith right now? And so this is critical, and we need to continue to have that spirit of whether or not God's Word is speaking to us. Is this describing me? Is it, is it I, right? Uh, we need to let the Word of God analyze us. Now, last night uh, in, in you know, Dan's sermon, uh, he was preaching to us from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And these are letters that Jesus Christ uh, had dictated, had John dictate, uh, transcribe to these churches, okay? Uh, Very specific letters with very specific communication. And each one of these short letters, there's a personal assessment that, that Christ is making of those churches, things that he sees. He's, he's got them under a looking glass. He's assessing them, and then he's giving them feedback. And if you ever had Dan as a teacher in, in, at Longview, you know he's very good at that, right? So this is the perfect sermon for him to be preaching is, is this, this message of assessment. But, but Christ is taking an assessment of our lives, and Christ does desire to communicate to us with a level of criticality. Because the way that you are right now is not the way that you should be tomorrow. That's like a very simple truth of our faith, is that Christ is speaking to us. He's active. He's a a primary mover. He's a mover and a shaker in our lives. And if you know him and his Holy Spirit is indwelling you, he's constantly calling you to go deeper. And so each of these letters comes with a very sober warning from our Lord, and it sounds like this. He that hath an ear, let him hear. You guys remember that? In fact, each one of these short letters to each of these churches ends with the very same message, the very same warning. 
to the church of Ephesus, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the, par- of the paradise of God. To the church of Smyrna, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. To the church in Pergamos, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. To the church of Thyatira, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To the church in Sardis, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To the church in Philadelphia, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To the church of Laodicea, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay? So what what is this? What is this phrase, and why is it so important? What does it mean? Okay, well, the the phrase, he that hath, is a a conjunction that, that, that the word hath means haveth. He that haveth. And so it means any person that, that, that possesses an ear, he's calling you to listen. I mean, do you have ears? Like, do you, I, I mean, as I look around the room, I'm, I'm confident. I mean, I'm not sure everyone, right? But I'm, from what I can tell, there's lots of symmetrical heads. I believe people have ears, okay? So check, you, you, ha, you, you hath an ear, right? But the word here, uh, ear here doesn't simply mean ear on your head. The Bible uses the word ear this way, uh, it's intended to be uh, 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 the gateway of learning. In other words, the, 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 the phrase ear, the word ear, he that hath an ear, means that you ought to be prepared for knowledge, for information, for content. Your ear isn't just to hear things, okay? It's, an, it's intended to learn things. So he that hath an ear, let him hear. And the, the phrase let him hear is often translated hearken. And it's, the, it's an act of listening. It's an active listening. It's the act of listening. So the phrase becomes a cautionary request. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Any person, this is what Christ is saying, any person that is able and willing to hear and to understand, receive this message. Any person that is able and willing to hear and understand, please receive this message. Okay, so why should we care? I mean, because isn't like, that's like the whole Bible, right? Like everything in the Bible we're supposed to hear, we're supposed to understand. But there's something unique about this phrase. In the case of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when Jesus says, he who hath an ear, let him hear, In a very direct manner, he is saying, pay special attention to understand this very difficult request and warning that I'm putting before you. And it means that we should measure and consider each word with caution. It's important that we listen to the words of Christ when he says, let me warn you specifically of something. I have something very special and important to tell you that it's unique to you and you need to hear it and you need to receive it because if you don't, 
It's of the utmost consequence. If you do, it is of the utmost consequence. The decision that you make preceding the things that I'm about to say have everything to do with your Christian walk moving forward. That's how he uses this phrase. In fact, this becomes particularly important as we discover that it was only Christ who ever used this phrase in Scripture. Variations on the phrase, he that hath an ear or ears to hear, let him hear, show up 16 times between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Revelation. And it's always Christ speaking it. And so just as Dan has introduced this phrase to us in Revelation, I want us to consider what God is asking us to be careful for in other places in Scripture. So we're going to be in the Gospels. And I want us as Living Faith Fellowship to be familiar with all the ways in which Christ is commanding us to pay particularly, particular attention to what he's saying. Because what we're about to learn, both in Revelation and in the Gospels today, have everything to do with how we're going to proceed. Outside of our fellowship, um, you will often hear other pastors, and, and by fellowship I mean MBT and the sister churches, Living Faith Lee Summit, Living Faith Boston, the churches that have our particular DNA, right? Tampa, we're, we're a unique sort within the fellowship, okay? And, uh, and hopefully we'll continue to be. There's an identity and there's a DNA that we're trying to pass along. Now, now we should never take that for granted because all it takes is one generation to pass away and everything that God has given us that seems unique, it could disappear, you understand? But if you listen to other pastors, pastors that we respect in the broader fellowship, what they say when they're assessing the young people in our churches is they, they use the word movement of God. Now, I, I can't tell you that I understand what that phrase means. I can't, I can't tell you what the word movement of God means. But I do believe what they mean is what we have here is something very, very special. I believe that this is special. I believe that, that, that there's evidence all around us that God is doing something very, very important in our midst, and it's not because we are important, but it's because we've chosen to surrender and believe. And every, everything comes down to, to our willingness to surrender and believe. Surrender and believe and surrender and believe and, and whether or not we're going to continue church planting, whether or not your young adult ministry is going to continue to grow in your community has everything to do with whether or not you're willing to surrender and believe. But here's the deal. Whatever you've got going on right now in your church, you cannot be content with that. You cannot be satisfied with what's going on right now in your, in your, your particular young adult ministry. You cannot be satisfied. You, you cannot pat yourself on the back. You can, you, it's cool to be excited about, but listen to me. God wants to do more. And that has everything to do with whether or not today you're willing to heed when he says, he who hath an ear, let him hear it has everything to do with that phrase. It has everything to do with that warning. It has everything to do with that request. 
Because our passivity in this walk, our passivity in our ministry will undo everything. And so he's asking you for more. Whether you think you have it in you or not, he's asking for more. He's asking for us to go deeper. And that's, that's not easy. But whether or not it's easy is not the point. It has nothing to do with it. When we say, well, that's not going to be easy, that's a fleshly statement. That's a self-centered and selfish statement. And we only interject that but when we've already decided that we will not obey. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, and I'm going to pray that God would use our time in Luke chapter 14 to have us really consider whether or not we are true disciples. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we love you and we need you. We need you today. We need you this morning. Uh, people are tired. Uh, not everyone got a Red Bull this morning. Uh, but, uh, Lord, your spirit is more than enough to provoke us, to give us a boost of adrenaline, to cause our mind and our, and our energy to focus, and, Lord, most importantly, to make our ears attentive to the thing that you're asking of us. Lord, Lord tune our hearts and tune our ears to receive the very difficult words that we're going to find and that we're going to uncover today. In Luke chapter 14, Lord, in our flesh, we can't receive it. In our flesh, we won't surrender. In our flesh, we will stop up our ears. In our flesh, we will make excuses why, why Brandon's just trying to, to provoke us and, and that this is some sort of ploy and, and whatever, whatever, whatever. We'll come up with an excuse, a reason why, why intellectually we cannot, we cannot bow ourselves and humble ourselves before you. God, please help us to shun all of that, to throw all of that away, and to lean our ear into you today, that we might hear your voice and that we might hear your heartbeat. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we enter into Luke chapter 14, the very first thing that we need to do is that there's already a pattern emerging in terms of the context in which the phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear, the context in which that phrase is used. Okay? Last night, we saw that those letters to the churches went out to congregations of people. In other words, a multitude of people, a group of people. Sometimes these churches were somewhat smaller. They represent a city. And other times, these churches represent, in Asia Minor, a region of people. And these letters would have been disseminated down from John to, to, to churches all over Asia Minor, gatherings of people in their homes. Thousands upon thousands of people would have heard these messages to Smyrna, to Smyrna and to Pergamos and, and to Sardis. They would have heard this message and they would have had to make a decision based on what they hear. Now, in the other instances that this phrase is used, the same exact situation is occurring. There is a multitude. There is a large congregation of people. And Christ is presenting a message with the intent that he would be prospecting for the truest type of disciple. 
Because what, what Christ recognizes is that there are the multitudes of believers, but there are also those that are more consecrated and more fervent and more zealous and more surrendered and more willing and more faithful than the others. He knows that there are the outliers of the faith, and he knows that there are some of those that are central to what he's doing, those that have chosen to be a part of the movement of the Holy Spirit. And here in Luke chapter 14, we find Jesus doing this exact same thing. He wants to distinguish between those who are fans and those who are followers. That's what he's trying to do. He wants to distinguish between those who are fans and those who are true followers. Today, Christ is going to help us identify the difference between being a Christian and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not afraid to make a dividing line. He's not afraid to do that. So let's start here by looking at Luke chapter 14, verse 25. And there went out great multitudes with him. Okay, so once again, here is this large crowd gathering around Jesus. And, and we got to think about, in terms of the context, there's so much to say, right? There's so much to say about these multitudes. You guys, you guys remember when Jesus is looking out on the multitudes? Um, the exact reference is, is, is failing me. But when Jesus looks out upon the multitudes and he had compassion on them, what's it say? It says, it, it, as though they were a, a, a flock of sheep without a shepherd. And when he recognized that these people were, were, were wanting more, but had no one to guide them, that they wanted truth, but they had no one to tell them, they wanted love and nurturing and mentorship, and they had no one to walk with them, his heart hurt, it grieved. So Christ has a heart for these multitudes. He cares for them. But at the exact same time, Christ doesn't make anyone. Jesus doesn't make anyone go deeper. He sets the dividing line, and then he lets people of a free will choice step across it. That's what he does. And this is one of those moments again, and you've got this crowd of people that have been following him, and these are people that are still hoping that he will reveal himself as the king of Israel. That's what they're hoping for. They're waiting around. They're following him, and they've got their expectations, and they've got their presuppositions, and they're following Jesus around because they're expecting and waiting for the moment where he'll say, he'll say okay, guys, here's the army. Here's the plan. This is what we're doing. We're overthrowing Rome, and I'm going to take Israel again. That's what they're waiting for. They've been in bondage for a long time to Rome. And, and, the, and the hatred towards Rome is at an all-time high. And there's a group of people referred to as the zealots, that are, that are going around and building up little rebellion armies up against Rome, and, and there's little skirmishes happening here and there, and the Roman army just keeps putting them down, and the hope of Israel is that they would have the one true Messiah would show up and actually deliver them the way they've expected for a thousand years, for 500 years of captivity that they've been waiting. And Jesus is just He's just walking with them. And he's just teaching them. And, and, and they, but they've got expectations all the while. Or, or maybe they're hoping, maybe they're hoping that Jesus will entertain them. You know, the miracle worker. That he'll say, something, he'll say some clever thing. 
And they get to cling to that. And they get to say, hey, did you hear what he said? Wow, that was something else. We've never heard a teacher like this before. No, we haven't. It's incredible. He's so interesting. He's so distinct. It's so entertaining to hear from him. Or maybe, maybe they're hoping that he'll feed them because they're hungry. Because they want physical sustenance. Because maybe, maybe he'll multiply the fish and the bread and maybe we'll get another meal today. But they're all coming to the table with these expectations that they have. And these multitudes are not all that unlike the multitudes of people that fill our churches every single Sunday. And in fact, it's not a whole lot different than than many of the people in this room this morning. See, many of us have to consider what motivates us to congregate. What's motivating us to come together on a Sunday morning? What's, What's motivating us to come to something like a retreat? What motivates us to participate in ministry? What what motivates us to get discipled? To be in D2, to go to LFBI. And what I want to point out to you is that you have the ability to do all those things and do them for all the wrong reasons. And it can sure feel special. And it can sure feel religious. And it can sure feel spiritual. And and, and you can pat yourself on on the back all the way to a nominal Christian life. You know why I know that? Because Dan and I both sit in between your generation and a generation of people who've already done that. They've already capitulated. They've already played the game and they're burnt out. They've already checked all the boxes and they feel really good about that. And they do their business from week to week at church and they do their ministry part and they pat themselves on the back and they get in their car and they drive home and 99.9% of every Christian in America is just like that. And you could end up just like that too. You're not above that. Why do you come to church? What motivates you to sign up for ministry? What motivates you to serve? What motivates you to sign up to be discipled? What motivates you to do that? Is it the community? Is it because you need a friend? Is it because you need people to pay attention to you when you do religious activities? Is it to be entertained by Pastor Dan or Pastor Sam? Is it to be entertained because you do all those fun young adult events? Is it to exploit other people emotionally because that's a habit that you have? Is it to suck other people dry of emotional energy? Because you need someone to pay attention to you? And the question for you is this. Do you actually know what you want? Do you actually know why you congregate? Do you actually know what you're doing here today? In this message from Christ, he is going to startle us either into retreat 
or out of docile ideas of what discipleship is and into true, fervent following. And I like that word docility in terms of discipleship because so many of us call ourselves disciples simply because we went through 18 lessons. And the truth is, you may have learned a thing or two, but you're just as weak-hearted and undevoted now as you were before you signed up. And there's so many of us that are following Christ around. And we have no idea what we're, where we're going or what we're doing or what his intention is. And you can only maintain that for so long before you walk away or fall asleep. See, he wants to prepare us for the true potential of discipleship. And he wants us to anticipate the very hardest parts of following him. He wants us to move forward with sobriety. And unless each of us are willing to let go of the most important aspects of our life in order to have Jesus, then all of those aspects of our life in time will separate us from him. So here's our first key point. Fervor without forfeiture is nothing. Fervor, excitement, zeal, passion. The thing that we all want our faith to be. The thing that our worship set conjures out of us like magic is those feelings of following Jesus. The excitement that comes with it. But I want to tell you right now, as great as those feelings might be, they are nothing unless you are willing to abandon every aspect of your life, if need be, in order to truly follow Jesus wherever he'll take you, wherever he wants to go. And too many of us are tethered. We're held back. And we're unwilling to actually forfeit the things that he's asking us to do. And so in this sermon, what he's saying is he's, he's dividing lines. He's separating. He's saying, would you cross this line? Would you, would you cross this line? Okay, what about this one? And he's going to reveal something to us, and it'll be very, very personal. We see in young adult ministry all the time people who are excited for their newfound faith. This, this room is full of people like that, excited about their new friendships, excited about the culture of the ministry, but unwilling to consider what it means to give up or go deeper. We say, man, we say, you're everything my heart wants. Yeah. 
we say, my heart runs after you. And what we mean, what we mean, so many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, is your everything that my heart wants sometimes. And my heart walks briskly after you. That is unless I'm tired. And then I'll sit down for a rest. And we lie. And we lie to the Lord. We lie to his face. And he turned when he saw the multitude following him. He turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this sounds like a very radical statement. And that's because it is. It's insane. Now, we hear it and we think, oh my gosh, hate my family? Holy. Okay, now just pause for a second now. We're talking about Americans who you've spent your whole life trying to get out of your parents' house. (laughs) And I would bet if we took a poll, 95% of you have told your parents to their face that you hate them at some point, you know? But we're talking about a Jewish first century context here where families really looked out for each other. Families worked together. They, they shared the same family business. We're talking about people that were more integrated familial in a familial way than we will ever know, right? I mean, some of you that come from other places in the world, like I think about you know, those of you who are from India or parts of Latin America, you might understand what that's like. Family's different there than it is in America. We're like super independent here. But, but the, the point here is that this would have come as a shock to them as well. This would have been a very radical statement. Now, what Christ is not saying, let's point this out first. What Christ is not saying is the only way to follow me is to despise your family and walk away from them. That is not what he's saying. If that was true, Jesus himself was unwilling to keep that commandment because his mother was a critical part of his life and ministry. You understand? He would have himself been a hypocrite of his own statement because he was kind of a mama's boy. But here's the point. The word hate here is used in a comparative sense. See, when I, listen, here's the point. This is what you need to understand, and this, you need to get this. When our duty to our parents or friends comes in competition With our evident duty to Christ, we must give Christ the preference. When our relationships with our friends, when our relationships with our family members 
comes up against the objectives, the commands, the love, the sincerity, the intimacy that we are supposed to have with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when those things come up against Christ, Christ ought to win every time. So much so that your love for Jesus Christ makes every other relationship on earth look like hate. It's a comparative statement. And the truth is that if you believe this way, it may actually be interpreted as hate by your family members and friends. In other words, a lot of us in this room recognize that when we started following Jesus Christ and giving some time and energy to the ministry and to discipleship and getting involved, a lot of you immediately had family members that questioned your decision-making. And when you couldn't make it to that family event because you had other obligations ministry-wise or there was something going on that you couldn't participate in or you no longer spend every Sunday watching football at your dad's house like you used to do because you go to church now, that might be interpreted as hate. And that's tough. And a lot of us, you know, we feel like we're in a quandary. We're, be- we're between two straits. We feel double-minded. We feel in between. And that's because you are. As long as you're part of the multitude, that's, that's where you'll be. Tempted to go this way to follow Christ, but also like, like I'd like to go home now. This was cool. This is entertaining. Um, We'll we'll come look for you later. But, you know, it's Sunday and the football game's on. My family's putting a lot of pressure on me, you know. So, I mean, I know. I feel like I should be going deeper. I feel like I should be, I mean, I should be taking D2 this semester. I know that I should, but, man, it's just so busy over here, and, and there's a lot of pressure over here, and these people want, you know, they're asking things of me. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to come over here for a minute. But I'll be back. It's cool. I'll be back. And we get between. We get between. We get in that in-between space. I'm telling you, there's no power in the in-between space. There's no power there. So here's our key point number two. I am not a disciple. If I do not love Christ more than my friends and family. No one's telling you to stop loving your friends and family. Oh, wait, I just did it. They're giving me a hard time. I didn't know I actually do that. I make those sounds. I just discovered that. Gosh. No one's telling you that you need to hate your friends and family. No one's telling, like, I'm not, like, divorcing my family and walking away to go plant a church in, you know, Timbuktu. What, where is Timbuktu, by the way? I don't know what that is. is it, where is that? Is it? Oh, okay. I've been saying that for years. Okay, so I'm not doing that. Why? Because I love my family. I love my wife. They're coming with me because they've counted the cost too. Right? And, you're, and your family, you want your family to come with you too. You want them to. But if they don't, 
then guess what? It might feel like you're leaving them behind a little bit. And guess what? You probably are. Part of that's becoming a grown-up. <laughs> Some of that's just like, well, it's time to grow up and feed yourself and do your own laundry. All right, that's, oh, maybe that's the lesson for you today. But there's a faith-filled growing up, too. There's a spirit-filled growing up that looks like going deeper. And what that means is that along the way, you'll have to abandon things. Not, not throw people away. They might throw you away. Here's a story for you. So um, this is really difficult for me, but this, this is my real life. I have a very small family, okay? My mom raised me, me, and I had three, three siblings. Two passed away. So it's just me and my sister in the whole world, okay, left of my siblings. And um, my mom did her very best to raise us, single mom. We have a very small extended family. I have two, um, I have an aunt and an uncle by blood. And then I have an uncle that married in, and I have one cousin, and that's it. Well, that's the only family I associate with. And I've loved them. They've, they've been for me, there for me my whole life. But you know, when I was about your age, I started getting real serious about Jesus. And they started questioning that. They were like, what are you doing? Right? They're real uppity, you know, highly educated liberal, rich, you know, all that really annoying stuff. <laughs> They're all that. And I am a Midwest, you know, backwards Christian. And how could you possibly have a master's degree and believe that there's a God? How could you get all that education and still believe that there's some giant man up in the sky I mean, that's how they see me. We've had a lot of really difficult conversations about it. Well, here's, here's the dividing line. My sister came out as a lesbian a few years ago. Okay? Whoa. I had to take some really hard stances about my relationship with her, my approach to her. What was that going to be like? Can she bring her girlfriend into my home in front of my young, impressionable children? who don't even understand biological sex, let alone a relationship between people of the same sex, same gender. They're not going to get that. How, what do I do about that? I had to make some really hard decisions. My sister is going to get married in exactly one week to her girlfriend. And I will not be attending that, that wedding. Because I believe Romans chapter 1. Because I believe that it's unholy. I believe that it's an affront to the very first institution that God established in this world. And it's a hard decision for me because I love my sister. I love my sister more than they ever will, more than my aunt and uncle ever will. They cannot comprehend my love for my sister. They have no idea what I've done for her, what I've sacrificed, the time, the energy. They have no idea. And yet, I'm a backwards bigot. And my cousin told me, in no uncertain words... I never want to talk to you ever again. That's hard. Unless I understand what I'm gaining 
when I obey Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Unless I know just how precious it is to step out on the precipice and say, anything, Lord. Not just part of me. Not just in these situations. Not just in that situation. Every part of me. I'm not going to pick and choose what I think is going to be the, the easiest ways of being a Christian. I accept all of the ways in which being a Christian is both wonderful and hard. All of it. I leave nothing on the table. And then I get a little bit of relief. And I can say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you feel that way. It breaks my heart. I'd do anything to retain you. But so be it. Unless we love Christ better than anything in this world, and unless, unless we're willing to, to part with any and all things that might prevent us, then we are not truly His and His alone. So what are we ultimately talking about here? We are talking about the cost of discipleship. Listen to how Christ frames the issue more directly in verse 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, do you understand the weight and the gravity of that? What he is saying is that if you want to cross over from being a fan of Jesus into becoming a follower, then you need to have to be willing to bear any type of suffering, even to death. Let me remind you of something real quick. And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the syn- of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which, uh, which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye, ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. If the the church of Smyrna could do it, if the church of Smyrna could bear the cross, if Christ is calling them to go as far as, as being willing to die, how is that any different for me? I need to bear the cross. I need to bear it. I need to own it. I need to carry it. Jesus Christ did that for me. And I, in return, should be willing to do that to follow him. In Romans, Paul explains what it means to bear his cross. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's such an easy statement to read, isn't it? 
You read it enough times, it just rolls off your tongue, you know? It's kind of poetic, it just rolls off. I know it has something to do with following Jesus real hard. Guys, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, this is a real hard ask. This is a real hard ask for Laodicea. You understand? We're all real comfortable. Your padded seats, your air-conditioned room, your electric worship, electrified here, PowerPoints, egg casserole. We're freaking soft. Anybody go out and like kill an animal this morning to eat it for breakfast? I mean, we're just soft. We've been massaged. Through through 2,000 years of Western history, we've just been massaged and lulled to sleep. We're the most coddled generation that we could that is on on record. Like I don't, I mean I don't quite know what the Babylonian Empire was like, (laughs) but we got it real good, and we don't want it any other way. We don't. We're real happy. It's a difficult proposition for someone like you and me who are settled into our creature comforts. The truth is we have no real master besides ourselves. Matthew 19, 16, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So a young rich man comes and visits Jesus and says, Hey, I would really like eternal life. I'd like to be a follower. I'd like to follow you. And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into into life, keep the commandments. And he saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy uh, father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man, patting himself on the back, feeling real good about himself, saith, all these things have I kept from my youth, up that uh, what, what lack I yet? And Jesus saith unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's you. That's you with your job, with your career, with your, with your academia, right? With your desires to own a house and to, to have a family. Your desire to re- retain relationships and, and your desire to, to, to be well-known or to be respected in your field. That's you. That's you. You don't even freaking know it. Christ has put the line right in the sand. He's put the dividing line right before you, and he says, no, 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 no. Bear your cross. Bear your cross. 
For Paul, it was different, though. Paul was a firebrand. A man who saw both sides of life's coin and chose the side that said the cross. He knew wealth. He knew respect. And he traded it away. Philippians 3.10 That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. 2 Corinthians 4.10 Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always. Think about that. Say it. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh, so that death worketh in us, but life in you. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I choose death. I choose spiritual death. I choose physical death. Whether to be here in the flesh or whether to be present with him, it makes no darn difference one bit to me. I am willing to die. Had a conversation with a young man last night. We were talking about fear. We were talking about anxiety. We, in fact, we preached about this a couple weeks ago in Kaya. We were talking about Paul. What made Paul willing to sit in that prison cell for two years and, and, just, and be as bold and as fervent and as excited as ever? I, I've never spent two years in prison, and if you have, I don't want to know about it. All right? I don't want to know about how you got there. But it doesn't sound great. What made him so fervent and zealous and excited as the, as almost as the day he got saved and he's in a prison cell? What makes him so bold? What makes him so confident? Because he fears nothing. He fears nothing. If you don't fear death, then there's room for anxiety and fear in every aspect of your life. Right? If, you, if you're greatest, if you fear death... If you are, if you think about death and you're like, I don't want that. That sounds terrible. That's a, death sounds miserable. Then you've just left room for fear and anxiety in every sort of way. Fear of your parents, fear of not making it, fear of your professors, fear of your classmates, fear of sharing the gospel with other people. There's room for all of it now. But if you can say, I do not fear death, and you can believe that, there is nothing left to fear. Nothing. You're set free. You can endure anything. And you can bear your cross. Key point number three. I am not a disciple if I do not love Christ more than my own life. History tells us that 11 of the 12 disciples died as martyrs. 
I've always been fascinated with the story of Peter and his death. Christ prophesied his death. Told him that there was going to come a day where he is going to have, he himself, just like Paul, would have no choice over his own life. And the men were going to pick him up and carry him wherever they wanted. And what history tells us is they carried him to a cross. And when presented with the crucifixion, Peter said, I'm unwilling to die the way my Messiah did. I'm not, I'm not worthy. to die the way my beloved died. Crucify me upside down. I want you to understand something about that. The thing about crucifixion is even though it's prolonged death, even though it's excruciating, the primary objective is that you would lose strength at some point and your body would give out And you would essentially suffocate by hanging on the cross. But but when you're crucified upside down, that is not quite the privilege. And it would have been excruciating and long and painful. But he was willing. Was willing. And while many of us will never face martyrdom, it is better to count him worthy right now and extend our imagination to the possibility of death than to imagine a vain thing. And tell yourself why you can't find time to pray. And you can't find time to study the Bible. And why fasting is so difficult for you. We're lazy. We are of the multitude. We are are Laodicea. Oh, no, 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 no. There's a movement of God in our midst. Look, look, look at what God's doing. No, we're the exception. We're like the Philadelphian age, living out their faith in the Laodicean age. We're unique. We're special. You lie to yourself. You lie to yourself. Where is the endurance? Where is the yielding? Where is the surrender? Where is the imagination? Do you lie in bed at night and think to yourself, what would I not be willing to do for Jesus Christ? Take me to the grave. Do your imaginations prepare you for the worst of it? Do your thoughts and your prayer life prepare you for the hardest things that come with knowing Christ? Or... Do you make an excuse every morning why your devotion time was only five minutes long because you got to hurry and get to work? Freaking ridiculous. It ain't right. He who hath an ear, let him hear 
Are you actually a disciple? 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower? Okay, so here's a parable. We're going to come in contact with a couple parables here. And they're used to illustrate for us what it means when we don't fully count the cost that we're talking about. For which of you, intending to build a tower? First of all, you know building towers in Scripture? Never good. (laughs) Ain't a single instance that I can find where building a tower is a good thing, okay? Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? Whether he have sufficient, sufficient funds to finish it. Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish you know, this happened a lot when, the, when the, the recession hit, okay? The last recession hit. I remember we were on vacation down in the Ozarks, somewhere down here, like in the Branson area. And there was a whole community of mansions that were just half-built, empty, because someone didn't count the cost of the worst-case scenario. And so there's this whole neighborhood of half-built houses that look like they've been sitting there like that for four or five years. And I couldn't believe it. I reminded myself of this passage. And this is so much like us. Yeah, I want to go to church. It seems fun. The people are friendly. Let's do it. All that zeal bubbling up inside of you. Oh, yeah. It sounds like they do discipleship here. Going to sign up for that. But you never counted the cost. You never said, what's the end game here? What am I really aiming for here? What am I trying to get done? You never never took the time to recognize that your responsibility is to die. It's to die. It's to die. It's to bear your cross. It's to be a true disciple. It's to give up everything. Anything that God will ask you, to give it up. You didn't think about that. So you're like a builder who didn't count the cost. You didn't know what it was going to cost you. And you started building that house. And you poured that foundation. And you ran out of money like that. You had no, no end game in mind. You had no vision for the ministry. You had no purpose in the calling. You didn't know what it would cost. And now you look like a hypocrite. See, he only had eyes set on the end goal. He knew what he, he knew that there was this tower, this beautiful tower. It's like a lot of us are like, you know, heaven sounds awesome. Sounds great. We forget about all the stuff in between. Sounds great to have a tower. Sounds great to be in heaven. Sounds great to follow Jesus. Sounds great. Can't wait. Gonna lounge around in my tower. What are you doing a tower? What's the, what's the tower for? He's got, he wants one. I don't know. The guy wants a tower. Gonna build a tower. Gonna spend some money. Oh, wait, whoops. See, he, he didn't ever get perspective on the cost. And some of us don't have perspective on the cost of following Christ. 31. Let's look at the king. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else 
while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. Okay, so here's what's happening. There's a king. He's like, I'm going I'm to go take land. I'm going to be a con- who, What king doesn't want to be a conquering king, right? I'm going to go conquer this people. I'm going to go out and meet them. I've got 10,000 people. Okay? But he never takes the time to consider how many people might come out to meet him. Or the state of the other army. Or the state of the warfare. Or who his enemy really is. Who is the enemy? What what are his objectives for me? He doesn't think about those things. And he goes out to meet him. And he can see, oh, crap. Oh, we're in trouble. This is not good. And he sends someone immediately to make peace because he knows his 10,000 are nothing versus those 20,000. See, he only had eyes set on the end goal. And he was zealous without sobriety. He didn't get perspective. He didn't have perspective. Verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I just read that. And some of you are like, wow. He's going long, isn't he? This is kind of long, kind of a long sermon. Oh, this is what we do at retreat, so get over it. You've already, you've already placated. You've already gone back to not surrendering. Oh, you thought there at the beginning of the sermon, you were real riled up. You know, your, your heart was beating in your chest. You were thinking, I want to surrender. That sounds like I want what I want to do. And now here we are. And I just read an incredible statement. Have you considered it? Does this describe you? So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And I don't know what to tell you about that. There can be nothing outside of Christ. Nothing outside of his mission. Nothing. And if this fails to be true in our lives, then what is your faith? What is it? What is it? If it's not this, what is it? What's it supposed to be? So Jesus provides us with one more parable here. For us to to understand, to help us understand what is lost when we don't count the cost, when we choose not to be disciples, what is lost when we throw ourselves you know, fully into nominal Christianity. What is lost? What is lost when you're in the multitude? We lose all value for the kingdom. Verse 34. Salt is good. Amen? I like the salt. I was looking for some salt this morning. Couldn't find any. need some salt tomorrow. Somebody needs to point me to the salt. Salt's good. Pepper's good. Salt's better, though. No, look, look, a little pepper goes a long way. Pepper's good. It's good. Salt is great. See, you don't even know what's in there. Sodium is in everything. It's needed. Everything they make, they're sprinkling salt. Because they know. 
they know is savory, so yummy, salt. Salt is good. More than that, we're told in Matthew 5 that we are the salt of the earth. That's what we are. And we are the purging agent. See, salt, we'll go into it, but salt in those early years when Jesus was alive had so many more uh, uses than we use it today. It was a preserving agent. It was a purging agent. It was used to cleanse. and It was used to keep things for long periods of time that had a, a powerful uh, uh, use to it. And just like that, we, we, like salt, are the virtue of the world. You and me. Because we have light inside of us. We're the virtue of the world. We are the light. But what he says, salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it, it being the earth and its people, the lost souls that surround us, the people that we encounter, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. See, most Christians in our world today have lost the virtue of their true cause. They succumb to false teaching that promises comfort and psychological ease. But we are fools if we don't believe that the toxins of this Christian culture are not actually in our own hearts as well. Like we're the exception. No, it's with us too. And many of us are in danger of preferring the company of a pew over the company of Christ himself. Key point. He that hath ears to hear. Abandon is the only way to follow. That's it. Real simple. Really hard. Abandon is the only way to follow Christ. Give it all up. Give it all up. Now, I get it. Okay, there's there's people in the room today. There's people in the room today who might not even know Christ as their Savior. And they're here and they're like, okay, (laughs) no thank you. I don't want that. Um, Okay. I just want to point out that the alternative is a meaningless, superficial life in the world that ends with death and hell and destruction. And that Jesus Christ is the only way. It's the only way to heaven. It's the only way to know the Father. He's the only way to goodness and peace. He's the only way to comfort. And you ought to know him. You need to abandon you. Start there. Your thoughts, your expectations, start there. And receive him. But this message is really for those people who already call themselves Christian, who've actually not fully reckoned that they have nothing. You have nothing, nothing that belongs to you. So quit pretending. Quit pretending. It's a facade. Your wealth, 
your house, your family. It's not yours. It's not even yours. It's not yours to hoard and to retain and to coddle you and to hide behind. It's not even yours. It was only ever given to you by the grace of Jesus Christ. So it ought to be, it ought to be our reasonable service to be a living sacrifice and to trade it all in, abandon it all. Matthew 4.18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. What good is a life well lived? What good is worldly pleasure and gain? What good are all the friendships and family? If we aren't disciples of Christ, then what savor will our lives truly have? If we can't give it all away, then our lives will always be too full, too full, to receive what Christ has for us. So the question for you is, does this describe you? And what is encumbering you? What is keeping you from going further with Christ? The line has been set. Will you cross? Will you cross? the worship team can come up. We're going we're gonna to worship the Lord. Okay, now as we do that, guys, hold on now. Hold on now. We've got some time before lunch. We're going to do a couple worship songs. It'll be real nice. We'll sing. But there's a lot of us in this room who have things that we need to reckon Things that we need to figure out. Things that we need to talk through. Things that we know we're holding on to. Things that we need to unpack. And so what I want to invite you to do right now, actually, is to go grab someone or a couple people that are trusted. And I want you to go have a conversation about what you know is holding you back from being a true disciple. What are the things that you're worshiping over Christ? Are you willing to truly follow him? Are you willing to bear your cross? And are you willing to make every other relationship in your whole entire life secondary to the one with him? Are you willing to do that? And if you're struggling with that, or if you've historically been struggling with that, you're going to grab a person, and you're going to go out. There's places outside to sit. You can go in the back. But it's time to have a conversation, and then it's time to pray. It's time to pray and confess before the Lord and say, God, I lay all of this at your feet. I sacrifice it all to follow you. I want to be a true disciple, not just a disciple in name, not just comfortable with being one of the multitudes, a true disciple. I want to follow you. And even when I struggle with that, I'm committing myself that as life moves on, I want to be a disciple. I want to cross the dividing line. Grab that person, even right now, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And, and you bring it hard. I don't know what to say. But you ask a lot of a Laodicean like me. And I'm so thankful that you do. 
because my couch is real comfortable. And the things that I enjoy, they make me feel really good. But so much of it is vain and empty, and so much of it keeps me from truly knowing you. I do not want to fear death. I do not want to fear anything. I want to pick up my cross. I want to enjoy the fellowship of suffering that comes with knowing you. I want to count it all joy when I fall into diverse temptations and trials because I worship you. I want it. I want to know you. I want to know you the way John knew you. I want to hear your heart. I want to know your voice. I don't want to hold on to anything. Show me how. Teach me, dear Lord, how not to wander. Teach me discipleship. Help us to make decisions even right now. Please, God, in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.